I just have to say this as you're talking, your mindset is so refreshing. It is so refreshing to hear um, saying things like, you know, that was an opportunity for me to choose, you know, how I was going to look at this, you know, talking about being a victor over being a victim. Um, it, it, it's just so refreshing. And yes, I, I just have to say, you know, for what I do, representing female first responders, coaching, teaching, mentoring them to be the best version of themselves. I do a lot of mindset work. That's really my forte um, because when I was injured, I was couch ridden. The ultimate compliment is to be considered an asset by those who know you. But what exactly does that mean? And how do we get there? I believe that there is a less discussed approach to becoming a person of value, a person who is successful, respected by others, and fulfilled. It's somewhere between the hustle culture and the ease and flow of manifestation. This podcast is designed to be a resource for the ambitious, the relentless, and the rare who are breaking societal norms, going against the grain, and are open to unconventional practices as we study what it takes to be a true asset in every area of life. My hope is that you'll find this podcast unique and like it enough to share it with a friend and maybe even one day join us at one of our in-person events. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? I'm super excited to bring to you this next guest on the She's an Asset podcast. Meg, can you please introduce yourself to the people? Sure. Hi, my name is Meg Tucker. I am a major in the U.S. Army, and I am the founder slash chair of the Valkyrie Project. Meg, tell us about the Valkyrie Project, because that's how I found you. I found you online, um, loved what you were posting, obviously, all about, it seems to be all about uh, women veterans, correct? I'm so sorry. Yes. Um, I had to mute myself for a moment. My, my fiance has our smart house connected. So <laughs> whenever he receives a phone call, I hear this echo throughout our whole entire house, which hilariously, sometimes he'll be calling me when I'm at home and I'll hear seven voices at once go, David Butler wants to talk to Megan Tucker. <laughs> this is weird. It's so funny. Go ahead. Tell us, <laughs> tell us about the Valkyrie project. So the Valkyrie Project was my response essentially to a lack of female-centric exercise training for women in the military. In the beginning, it had a bit more of an apparel feel. Um, I was trying to create a stream of income by selling apparel, but also behind that apparel was going to be the the mantra of essentially that women in the military are now allowed to have access to all jobs in schools, um, but they don't always have sufficient training for that. So mm -hmm. someone might have the right heart and the right mindset and the appropriate grit to, for example, try out for a tier one or what we would call the most selective areas of military service, like things... You know, some examples that come to mind would be the Navy SEALs or, or uh, Delta Force, things like that. Um, but the training wasn't there. And a lot of coaches, in fact, that train military populations don't always have the education, uh, that the, the requisite education to understand how women's hormonal cycles can impact their training or even how their, uh, their birth control methods can impact their training. And so the inception of all of this was I was starting special operations as a, as a new captain and wanted programming and a brand that was made for me. And when I couldn't find one, I set out to make it myself. That's amazing. So you, so you, are you on special operations right now, or was that something that you did? I'm in a special operations organization. Yes. That is cool. Can you tell us anything about what you do? I do a job called psychological operations, which sounds a lot more nefarious than it really is. Um, we work in the information space in communications. What I, the phrase I tend to use for folks that aren't familiar with the role is essentially uh, military marketing. We tend to mostly work with partner nations and helping get their brand better set up for success in their own particular country. Um, for anyone that follows 
um, I would say security studies in general for anyone that follows the security environment globally in the United States, our focus is external. Our um, our nexus for focus is, is external to the United States. All of the threats that we are worried about and from a security standpoint are elsewhere and we go to them. However, a lot of the countries that we are allied with or partnered with have an internal locus for for needing security assistance. You know, there'll be criminal networks or international networks that operate in their countries and make them unstable. And so we often help those folks do marketing to professionalize themselves and mitigate the threat within their own country that also has the potential to reach out and touch the United States. Mm. So do you like it? Do you like doing what you do? I do. I am in a bit of a transitionary period right now. Uh, what it's called is a medical evaluation board for, for military folks, but essentially I've been struggling with some knee problems for the last upwards of six years now. And I've essentially been told that I need a knee replacement. So I'm at a bit of a crux in my career where I'll likely be getting out soon as a result of that condition. Mm. But up to this point, it's been a fantastic ride. And for the most part, I, I have no regrets. And, uh, you know, I will get to leave having had a really cool experience and met a lot of really amazing people and done really cool things. I'm sorry about your knee. I can I can relate to that. That's what took me out of uh, police work full time was a back injury. So I do understand that. How, how long have you been in the military, Meg? I joined in 2011. I came on active duty in the spring of 2011. Wow. So that's been quite a while. Yeah, it's when I go back and do the math, uh, it's low key horrifying that I've given basically most of my youth to the Department of Defense. But again, I, it's it's not something I regret. Um, but certainly there are trade offs that you make. And I think, you know, you understand that as someone that's a, a former first responder is you know, there are sacrifices involved in that decision. And you end up missing holidays and time with family and your social life takes a hit and sometimes even opportunities that you would have had in higher education or other job opportunities are a sacrifice, right? So it's, it's a sacrifice in more ways than one for sure. But again, a good experience that I wouldn't take back. Yes. You're, you're so right about that. What's next after your career? Like, what are you going to do? I'm going to continue on with the Valkyrie project and uh, pursue some other opportunity. Well, first off, I do have to leave this little bookmark statement. I'm probably going to take six months to do absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah. Just sleep in, work out, get back in touch with myself, maybe try and get back out in nature a little bit more and re-engage in some hobbies that I've put off for a long time, like art, you know, painting, drawing, things like that. I want to get back into my passions for a while and kind of reconnect with myself before I hit the gas on another career trajectory, but certainly Valkyrie Project is going to continue to be a focus going forward. And um, who knows, I may go get my PhD so that I can be a researcher in the human performance field. I love it. So speaking of that, let's chat about that. Let's dive into, so I feel like you kind of skimmed the surface about the Valkyrie Project. Like, let can we talk more about that? Like what... What are you going to do? What does it do? I saw you did this military synop like synopsis. Am I saying it correctly? Symposium. We did symposium. a symposium. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, and I want to talk about that, but before we get into it, tell me like, cause I, I guarantee our listeners are like, I want to follow this. What is this? I need to know about this. Sure. So primarily we are focused on providing exercise training for female tactical athletes or female service members, um, both to help them improve their individual branch fitness test scores and to provide more challenging training for women that are looking to go to more difficult jobs in schools. Um, schools meaning additional qualifications like air assault school, where you essentially repel out of helicopters on a rope or uh, airborne school is a common one that's essentially army parachute school with the static line jumping and uh, women that want to do the, the harder level schools um, an army example example would be uh, ranger school 
Um, but essentially, part of the impetus as well was that in 2010, uh, policy was presented that essentially revoked the combat exclusion rule, which was a piece of uh, policy in the United States that said that women were not allowed to do combat-related things, which is why prior to 2010, the, the closest women could get to combat would be flying aviation. Um, they were not at the time permitted to do infantry or, or things like that. So that rule was lifted and that opened a lot of opportunities. And so the training that we provide now is really oriented towards, you know, there is an acknowledgement that these jobs in schools, some of these jobs in schools in the military were previously only available to men. And mm -hmm. so in certain organizations of the military or certain sections of the military that don't historically send a lot of women off to these jobs in schools, you know, there's there's no foundation. An example would be, an infantry unit that was previously all male, you would expect to send lots of males to ranger school, or you would you would send them off for tryouts, essentially assessment and selection for things like special forces, the Green Berets. But because there are very few women in those previously exclusively male jobs, there are even fewer women than going on to those schools. Um, and so we're trying to provide workout programming that is intuitive for their biology and physiology. And what I mean by that is the programming that we offer has two-week blocks of follicular and luteal programming. So if every, you know, if the avatar of the average woman is a 28-day cycle, assuming she's not on some kind of birth control that messes that up, right? You've got half of your cycle is follicular, that's before ovulation, and the other half is luteal, that's ab after ov ovulation. And the science essentially shows that these different hormonal profiles can facilitate certain types of training, or they can be detrimental potentially to certain types of training. And there are folks out there that would argue that there's not enough science to support that. Others that I tend to lean with say there is enough science that we could use more. Certainly, let's keep researching. However, there are intuitive ways to line up your training with the phase of the cycle that you're in. So that's what we offer that's really unique in terms of fitness training. When someone signs up for the Valkyrie Project programming and they open up the Beyond the Whiteboard app, which is a CrossFit app, but with our programming in it, when you sign up with us, you can go in. And if you're before your ovulation day, you can look at follicular workout weeks and do follicular days for those workouts. And then when you click over, you can go into luteal. And so it allows you to have some more intuitive programming that most of these blanket PDF services that you get from online fitness trainers just usually isn't there. Um, in fact, I would argue that 99% of fitness coaches that you have access to online, whether it be for like a short six-week boot camp or otherwise, they generally don't take women's cycles into account. And so that's kind of the big difference that we have. And now, Meg, would you think that this would be beneficial for women, like female first responders? Would they find benefit in your, like for their, because, you know, they have to prep for PT, um, a lot, you know, probably obviously different standards than what you guys are preparing for, but do you think that that would be beneficial? I, I do. Um, and and this question has been posed to me before in terms of, well, you know, first responders end up doing a lot of similar things to military women. Why don't you just kind of combine them both? And primarily out of an attempt to respect our, our core ethos, I have not tried to, you know, rope other folks in yet specifically. I think there's still potential for that as the brand grows and as we are able to do more and we create more income flows with our uh, nonprofit status because we were previously an LLC. Um, but certainly I think training in sync with your cycle is beneficial for every woman. And so in that aspect, yes, I think it could be useful. Um, where, like you said, where it might not be as useful is in the specific modality. You know, most of our programming is based on the avatars of women that we have as the majority clientele, which right now is army women. So there's an emphasis on things that army women have to be good at. Running, 
ruck marching, which is, you know, wearing a 40 pound pack and moving for 12 miles nonstop, um, push-ups, pull-ups, that kind of thing. Um, but certainly there's also cases where first responders have to wear heavy load and move, especially you could argue firefighters. Um, and certainly the upper body tests there, I think are, are similar as well. So I think it's definitely worth trying. I have trained a couple, uh, female police officers in the past and for the most part had good results. Yeah. Cause I just, I know like a lot of women, um, going to the Academy, prepping for the Academy, um, they're all looking for, it's very, a common theme is there's nothing really for me. There's stuff for first responders. Yes. But there, and just cops, we, there are, I know that there are, but there's not anything specifically for just women. So, um, I think it'd be cool even if to the listeners, like if you're, I think it'd be cool to just check out what you have to offer as far as just at least working out, because it's like, once you're on the job, I mean, working out, we need to be working out. And it sounds like it it would be pretty in line with some of the things. And like, we talk about wearing heavy things. Well, a police officer, I mean, it's not a ruck, right? Pack, but I mean, we're wearing 20 pounds of gear all day, every day while we're doing the job. So, I mean, I I do feel like there's a lot of um, similarities and that probably be beneficial. Um, What, so- Tell me about the military event because <laughs> I can't pronounce the word. Tell me about the military event that you put on. We did a military women's symposium in the Washington, D.C., the National Capital Region area. And that was an intersection of myself meeting up with a handful of other like-minded women that essentially found ourselves in I don't want to say like a frenzied conversation, but a frothy conversation of like the more that we spoke, the more that we produced this kind of this this really strong and sort of effervescent consensus that like there's so much that people need to be doing and talking about related to military women that they're just not. Like what? From from my perspective, um, having intuitive workout training that accommodates women's biology and optimizes women's biology and physiology. Um, there's a lady, Catherine Basso, who's the owner of Kadri Clothing, K-A-D-R-I. She's how I found you, by the way. She's fantastic. She's the most like adorable in this, in the face slash like ratchet, tell you like it is personality I've ever met in one package. She's amazing. Um, but her company makes tactical apparel and adventure wear for female, uh, for, for female, uh, service members and first responders. So she was like, you know, nobody's making apparel for women that makes sense, like protective apparel that makes sense for women and equipment that we use on the job specifically for women. It's just a men's item that's shrunken down and not really accounting for our particularities, like, yes, you're absolutely right. Another person, the first person to approach me actually was um, Shay Haver, who was one of the first two female army rangers. Um, I met her at an event last year in Washington, D.C., and she and I shared a lot of ideas. Um, so, you know, there was kind of a convergence of all of us saying, why is no one talking about this? Why is no one talking about this? Similar to the way that I had the experience of why isn't their programming made for me? when I was going into special operations. So we decided that we would host a symposium and, you know, uh, we attempted to get some sponsorship from the Department of Defense in our own respective circles of influence, which didn't quite work out, but that's okay. We ended up getting some excellent sponsorship from companies like Mystery Ranch and Walther. And those sponsorships essentially funded the event so that we could have people come out and listen and learn for free. And we could live stream it for free. And uh, the recording should still be available on our website under the symposium tab. If it's not, that means the recording company had to kink it because they they did tell us it would only be there for a little while. But last I checked, the recording was still there. Um, And it was really enlightening. It was really educational. I had an excellent opportunity to host my own tactical coach, Michael Bann, who's a world-class fitness coach and just 
easily the most empathetic, understanding and educated fitness coach I've ever met. We talk about my cycle and how to train around it all the time. You know, we don't, there is no such thing as a taboo conversation with him, which I admire a lot. And I also got to host on my panel, Dr. Stacey Sims, who is really a leader in this area of women's performance, globally a leader. So if anyone's not following her content, I would urge you strongly to do that now because she's she's very, very gifted and very intelligent. That's amazing. I was going to ask you, have you met Lisa Jaster? Do you know who Lisa is? I have not met Lisa. Um, my friend Shay knows Lisa. Of course. Uh, because you know they they all hung out together in that first ranger class. Yeah. Um I reached out to Lisa at one point actually when I was trying to myself attend ranger, ranger school back before I had all these knee issues. And um you know she's a great person. She's um she's incredibly gracious with her time. She's in high demand but she's gracious nonetheless um in spite of the demand on her time. And I believe she's published a book recently. We tried to get her out for the symposium, but she was she was not available, unfortunately. But the good news is we're going to try and do this thing annually. So we've got more opportunities to try and have her out. Absolutely. Yeah. Her we had we just had her on the podcast and she she was. She was wonderful. But so it's just so funny when you talk about Shay. It's just it's interesting because there's so few women that have, you know, gone through Ranger School and then you just are like, yeah. I know Shay, the first one of the first two. And I'm like, wait, I know Lisa. What are the first three? So uh, it's pretty cool. Um, I'm sorry about your knee. So it sounds like you were gonna go, you were prepping for Ranger School. Yeah. So I was um I essentially had my packet in hand. I was ready to drop my packet and try and go. And then um my knee just started swelling, and after months of swelling, it started to hurt and I got the news that I would probably need some kind of surgery shortly before a deployment. And I wanted to go on that deployment because at that time I had been training with my guys the whole time and I couldn't fathom them going on this mission without me. So I went anyway and kind of sucked it up and eventually had two operations back to back on the same knee in spring of 2020, right as COVID was kicking off. So recovery was recovery was wild. I essentially had to continue working from home. I was an instructor at the time. So I had my leg in this big brace and my sister, poor thing was like cooking all my meals and helping me shower. And like my day hours were spent like teaching classes to these army students online, which was a thing we had never done. Right. Um, It was a wild time. And I, I would make the argument uh, from a physiological perspective. I think the high stress of that phase of my life, including some personal things, that high stress probably contributed to the surgery not healing very well. And I've just been dealing with the residuals of that ever since, but you know, it's okay. I've got a great coach. I'm I'm functional enough to be, you know, a human being that gets to enjoy things. It's just coming up on a time where maybe I don't need to army anymore and that's okay. My, my talents can be applied elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And I love your mindset about that. Speaking of mindset, um, can we talk a little bit about what it has been like for you or what it is like as a woman in the military? Um, sure. And I'll bring something that I have been chewing on for about a week now up. I'll bring up a thing I've kind of been chewing on since I was on uh, James, James Gearing's podcast, Behind the Shield something I've struggled with or kind of wrangled is the idea of sexism Mm. because half of me uh, thinks it's important to acknowledge where it does exist and when it does exist in order to further the conversation for everyone and to continue to create space where women can bring their talents to bear in, in the communities that we serve in. And the other part of me that is you know, refuses to be a victim and says, I will take responsibility for everything in my life to the extent that makes sense. Because for me to overly ascribe certain things to sexism means that I allow it to have an impact on my life and I allow it to victimize me and I allow it to stop me from doing what I want to do. 
So overall, my experience has been fairly positive in the military. I will say I started out as a helicopter pilot in the Army. The Army eventually got rid of my airframe. So I switched to special operations because it was a bit of a gamble for me to stick around waiting for another airframe and maybe not get one. But I experienced a lot more sexism, like which was overt and obvious than in aviation than I ever did in special operations, which you might not expect. Um, I've actually found myself to be, for the most part, surrounded by very emotionally and intellectually intelligent folks in my job in special operations. But um, there was a time when I had to brief a very important group of people who decide how much money we get. They came down to visit my installation. I was in a special operations unit at the time, and I was selected to present information about a recent deployment related to what we did. But of course, because I earned the aviator wings, I was wearing them on my uniform on my chest. Like, you know, everybody has the opportunity to wear their badges and whatnot. Excuse me, sip of water. My throat's a little scratchy. Um, This general officer came up to me after the brief and he looked down at my chest and where the badge was. um, And he has a funny screwed up look on his face and he goes, where'd you get those? Not when did you go to flight school or what did you fly or why did you stop flying? Just where did you get those? Like I was some kind of, you know, stolen valor person that you see videos about on YouTube who like assemble fake uniforms and then try and go get a military discount. (laughs) So I told him, you know, I earned them. I was a Kiowa pilot. I went to flight school. I flew for years. Um, and so in that moment, I was pretty sure it was sexism because he was a higher ranking male. I was a younger ranking female. He didn't look like he was actually curious. He looked like he was criticizing. But at the end of the day, I can't know for sure, Yeah. right? Like I can't know for sure if that was actually sexist or if he would have been a prick to me, whether I was a woman or a man, or if he simply was just curious and he had RBF, like I'll never know, right? So I wrangle with that incident a lot um, because it's an opportunity for me to choose not to be victimized. Like if the guy had come up and said, you know, you don't belong here, you're a woman. That's a hundred percent sexism, right? But sometimes you just don't know. And I think that sometimes we forget as women that, you know, even though you can make a very strong argument that history has put us in a victimized position frequently. You still have a choice moment to moment. And if I can't be certain, I'd rather, I'd rather give that stranger benefit of the doubt because that makes me less bitter. And that gives me more control over the outcome. Meg, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'm hope you're enjoying it and getting some good stuff mind shifting things from this. I just wanted to remind you super quick that if we are not hanging out on social media, we should be, you should come hang out with me. Um, I am the Autumn Clifford on Instagram. I'm Autumn Clifford on TikTok and I have a Facebook group called She's an Asset. Love to have you there. Love to hang out with you and get to know you. Thank you so much for supporting my show. Let's continue. I just have to say this as you're talking, your mindset is so refreshing. It is so refreshing to hear um, saying things like, you know, that was an opportunity for me to choose, you know, how I was going to look at this, you know, talking about being a victor over being a victim. Um, It's just so refreshing. And yes, I, I just have to say, you know, for what I do, representing female first responders, coaching, teaching, mentoring them to be the best version of themselves. I do a lot of mindset work. That's really my forte um, because when I was injured, I was couch ridden for six months. It was a very quick, you're done, can't do this anymore. And I hit a very deep depression. So really I focus on emotional um, resilience because that's that's what allowed me to bounce back. You clearly have that. Um, and And I just wanna say, Yes to the sexism um, discussion. I just, that is how I feel. And I'm not going to lie to you. I feel like I grew up on the internet a little bit because I've been been doing this professionally for the last eight years. So I've developed an online presence as a coach. 
and I've made some mistakes and I've said some things um, that I own. I, I don't hide anything, but like I've, I've said some things that have definitely sounded victim E um, and, and it's just like, geez, like I have now, like, since I've grown up a little bit, <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow. Like that sounded very victim me. And like, yes, maybe that does happen. And yes, maybe it is. I can say that in law enforcement, sometimes in some police departments and situations, it is different for a woman. It just is. Um, I'm sure you can, you have faced those situations, but what I love the most is that you said, yeah, but I'm not a victim right? Like, I don't want to be a victim of that. And and I just want, I just want to highlight that, especially to the listeners, because I think it's easy for us to go down that road, you know, um, right, wrong, or indifferent. And I'm not judging anybody either way. It's just what feels better being a victim or not being a victim. Right. And, you know, something that Shay, I've heard, I've heard Shay say a couple of times that I really appreciate is that in spite of the fight that we are actively fighting to have more attention and investment put towards women in the military that are still giving their all but not receiving the same support as the guys is that in spite of that most of my opportunity she says this and I can say the same is true for me too the vast majorities of the the vast majority of opportunities that I've had and successes I've had in the military are the result of men who did stick up for me who did give me an opportunity to assess, Mm -hmm. who did write me a good evaluation, who did trust me with a large amount of responsibility alone and unafraid in a faraway land where there wasn't someone there to micromanage me as a captain, Mm -hmm. right? Where I, I could easily waltz into an embassy and say the wrong thing and ruin the mission for everyone. Like I was given that trust. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to acknowledge that. Um, and I think to circling back to the whole victimhood mentality I think we all grow and learn as time progresses and this is why I hate when people steal sound bites from politicians from 10 years ago and try to apply them today because it's one it's out of context and two we're not being fair to that individual's growth agreed maybe they were in a different place get over it which is by the way a thousand percent why you will never see me in politics Mm -hmm. and if you do call me a hypocrite. I'm not doing it, <laughs> but <laughs> it's unfair to them, right? It's, there's still people too, and it's unfair to, to judge that. Um, but you really do. My biggest problem with the victim mentality is that you just, you give away so much of your power because once you start greasing the wheels of that mentality, I and mean, if you think about the linkages in your brain, they are literally reinforced the more that a thought or a piece of information crosses synapses in your brain in a certain pattern, the more they do that, the more they become reinforced. And so the more that you decide you've been a victim, the more you're going to anticipate it and you're going to expect it from others. And it gives away all your power that because at that point you, you are left with no choices. Um, You know, certainly there's some delicacy to be had having a victimhood conversation around things like physical and sexual assault. I mean, literal cases where absolutely individuals are a hundred percent at no fault and have been completely taken advantage of. But then you see those cases of women who have gone through those kinds of things who will have rebounded in such an incredible way, like you did after your injury and say, well, mm-hmm. yeah, that thing happened. And I was a victim of their actions, but that person hasn't taken my mind hostage because of what I've done my work and I don't have to choose victimhood forever. And so I would say, you know, even though I still wrangle with that one moment, I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was sexism, but I couldn't buy into it at the time. And I try not to now, like, I think it's an, I think it's a path we walk. Like, I don't know that there's ever a final day where it's like, yeah, I live my life like a victim or I live my life with autonomy or excuse me, with autonomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's a path and the little choices that you make certainly forge your path in different directions that you might not have expected if you keep an open mind. So good. It's so good. And it's, and, and it's such a journey. I just don't ever believe it's a destination, right? So we're just constantly moment to moment, you know, assessing and reassessing and acting and, and, you know, I just, I love that. And, and, and I do love what you said as far as like, 
you know, the politicians and like the 10 year thing, like holding against them. Yeah. And I'm going to just say this, even to make it even more relevant. I mean, I just think the same thing about influencers or anybody who's been online, right? Like, because I can, I can go back and look at some of my shit and I, and I leave it up on purpose. Like I leave it up on purpose. Cause I'm like, no, look, I'm human, but like, I have said things and I'm like, Oh, Oh, I was definitely a different person than I am today, right? Which congratulations, because that means I'm friggin' doing my work, like you just said, right? Because I can tell you, if you're not changing and up-leveling and transforming for the better, then you have work to do. Meg, what was it like to be a helicopter pilot? I have to know. Honestly, it was... <laughs> It was a lot more tiresome and a lot less mavericky than I could have ever imagined. Like I had visions of grandeur <laughs> in my head. I would like ride my motorcycle to work, to go fly. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, I am like Mav right now. Yes. But really I was just exhausted the whole freaking time, the whole time. Like flight school was a kick in the gut and honestly you know there are some people that you meet that go through that and they're like I love that I had a ball you know even getting six hours a night because you'll fly half the day be in class half the day and then the third half of the day that doesn't exact actually exist you go home and study 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 some people come out of that and they're like it was a time of my life I think those are the folks that come out of their mother's womb like ready to jump in a cockpit like they were born to do this mm -hmm. um I don't regret my choices and I enjoyed it while I did it, but I was not one of those come out of the womb, ready to fly type of people. So it was hard for me. Uh, the skills were hard earned. Some of the skills came really easily to me and others were just really difficult and took a lot of repetition. And uh, in a sweaty, hot cockpit in the armpit of America, some nowheresville, Alabama, I'm sorry, folks in Alabama, that particular spot, you, I know you're familiar, Fort Rucker is just humid misery. It just mm -hmm. is, um, you know, and, and you get low on blood sugar and you're thirsty and you're tired and there's still this like circa 1980, you know, war veteran pilot next to you who's now a contractor like, do it again, do it again. And it's like, I'm about to black out in here, but all right, here we go again. It was a lot more um, physically and mentally and emotionally taxing than I was prepared for. Um, and then when I got to the unit combining, cause you were still learning, right? Like you, you, you're still a new baby when you get to the, to the job, much like you'd be a new baby as a brand new graduate from the police academy, getting to the force. You still have a lot to learn and having that added on to being a platoon leader was very difficult at times because we had, you know, 90% I, I never was a leader of a female pilot or even a female soldier there were a couple in our entire squadron but I was one of two or three women in the entire squadron of 200 people so often I was in charge of grown men who were old enough to be my dad who had a lot more experience than me that I was expected to learn from but also be responsible for from an administrative standpoint mm-hmm you know, so if somebody reams you out in the cockpit and, you know, tells you, you're an idiot, what are you doing, you suck, blah, 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 and then they have to turn around and say nice things about them in their evaluation so that they can get promoted, mm -hmm. and it's really hard not to, like, let your personal bias infect, you know, a piece of paper that to some degree dictates a person's future. Yeah, that's tricky. Um, It was wild, man, it was wild. I one time had to there was this guy with a potty mouth who was a really talented instructor pilot, but he would just say really unfiltered things and often wildly inappropriate things, never directed at a person per se, but things that, especially nowadays, like could get you in trouble for sexual harassment type stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, the first counseling I gave him, he didn't like. And he had a voice like Dan Aykroyd. I'll never forget. He's like, ah, that's that's not a good counseling out to you. You didn't really tell me anything meaningful. Let's try this again. And I'm like, no, no, you you don't tell me when I'm counseling you how to do the counseling. That's not how this works. But then the next time I sat him down, I was like, hey, dude, the things you were saying, they're wildly offensive. And if you're not careful, you're going to get in trouble. Also, you're making the junior soldiers not respect you because you set this bad example. 
And then he goes, well, see, there you go, LT. That's a much better example of a counseling. And I'm like, no, no, this, this isn't where you give me feedback on my feedback for you. This is where you just <laughs> shut your trap and recognize that you're offensive. And you need to stop. Like it was just stuff like that all the time. It was nuts. Oh my gosh. That's funny. I mean, I have to say it's funny because I didn't have to deal with it, but it sounds really funny. Was like, was flying like, man, like I just, because of course, you know, I've only ever ridden (laughs) an airplane. So like thinking about flying a damn helicopter, like, did you love like actually doing the flying? Yeah. When, when the cockpit wasn't a stressful environment, I did. Um, It was just often a stressful environment for me, like in, as a new baby Mm -hmm. to the unit. And then we shortly after I got to the unit were sent on a rotational basis to Korea. So we were there for nine months from like the fall through the winter. Mm -hmm. And uh, my particular airframe, you can't fly in certain weather conditions. Mm -hmm. And this particular time of year in Korea had so much humidity combined with pollution that was like flowing south out of China that the visibility would be terrible. And for us, that meant like if this, if the, you're not meeting the minimum visibility, you you can't train, you can't fly. And everybody's got minimum hours that they have to hit in order to be qualified in the airframe. So it essentially resulted in this paradigm where everybody needed way more hours that they couldn't get because the weather was awful. And I think that definitely had a negative impact on my progression. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I never because of that and shortly after we got home from that rotation my airframe was turned off basically shut the unit was shut down Hmm. um i just didn't progress as much as some of my peers did especially my peers that went on to fly other things you know they they got to go fly apaches and become you know real technical and tactical experts but i just i never quite reached that point so i was always kind of wrangling a confidence issue But there were definitely times when I got in the helicopter with a co-pilot that was like, let's just go play around and, and figure some stuff out. Like, I'm not here to quiz you or make you like, you know, denigrate you. That that was kind of a big aspect. You know, there, there are a lot of egos sometimes in Army aviation. And something I struggled with was folks that wanted to teach by criticizing. And I, I learned by being shown and being given an opportunity to experiment. So when those opportunities did present themselves, it was really fun. I love um, yeah, there was this one flight maneuver in flight school that basically you're, you're pretending that the, uh, the hydraulic controls have failed. So the airframe would go from being relatively smooth and easy to control to you're essentially fighting the controls you know you've ever gotten in a really old car and the steering just feels like 15 pounds in every direction it's like that but under both hands and under both feet um and we were the instructor was trying to get me to do this maneuver and uh he would not stop talking through the whole flight pattern it's like a five minute loop around the airfield before we land and he was like all right now you're gonna do this now you're gonna do that now you know push this lever down and like slow back a little bit and he would just was talking so incessantly that I couldn't focus on what I was doing. So after the second time, I was like, Hey, sir, do you mind if I, uh, if I just try this without you talking at all? And then if I'm like about to kill us, then you can take over and finish the landing for me. But I just want to see if I can do it without you talking. And he was like, Oh, well, well, that's just fine. And he crossed his arms and got all puffy and, and, uh, he was clearly offended, but I've, I've like smoothed that landing on with no issues, like perfect, smooth, buttery, smooth landing. And he was all surprised. And then I months later heard from another instructor pilot. He had told the the whole rest of the, uh, the training crew that I had yelled at him and told him to shut up. (laughs) It's like, you guys accuse women of being emotional. You were so offended that you went back and said that. It's so funny. It's the, uh-huh. I can relate to that. We could go back and forth probably with a few war stories like that. I think it's funny, but 
I, I just think it's inspiring as hell that you flew helicopters. I think it's really, I think it's really cool. I always get pumped. Like this means nothing, but I always get pumped when I'm like flying a, like when I'm riding in a commercial airplane and I see a female pilot, I'm like, yes. Like I literally make such a big deal of it. And everyone's like autumn. I'm like, no, do you see we have a female pilot? It's awesome. <laughs> it's too rare. Honestly, there's, I would love to see more women in aviation. Yeah. I do the same. I get excited when the airline pilots a woman. Sometimes I choke up a little bit like, ah, I get I get your pain. <laughs> I, bet. I bet, man. Wow. So Meg, as we wrap up, what what would you, we get, so we have, a, like I said, we have a lot of female first responders listening to this. And what would you, what, what do you want to leave them with? What would be some good advice? I mean, you're very accomplished and now you're out there doing something for you know, the women on the front lines, what would you like to say? What do you want to leave them with? There are so many things, uh, but I would, I would have to say you might be surprised with the outcome first when you give benefit of the doubt more often. And two, when you take calculated risks more often. Mm. Um, I think the benefit of the doubt really helps to feel more comfortable and part of the team in spaces where it feels very obvious that others don't always see you that way. Um, And often we get it wrong, right? I've caught myself being... um, disproportionately expecting people to dislike me or be mean to me or disproportionately expecting bad outcomes and almost always proving myself wrong. Um, So I'd always say benefit of the doubt is a great way to go to ease, ease those feelings of discomfort and to, again, step away from the victim mentality. If you don't always believe someone's out to get you, then it's easier for you to get things done and you feel better along the way. But secondly, I think it's also important to take risks and you'll surprise yourself. And what about what I mean by that is having the courage to be professional but vulnerable with your leadership and your peers. You'll be surprised, I think, when you open yourself up in that way. As I have been, sometimes it's with my supervisor, sometimes it's with peers, but being open about something hard that you're going through or being genuine when you ask someone, are you doing okay? I've been surprised along my career how often, you know, I'll ask someone, hey man, how you doing? And and they'll reply with, I'm all right. And usually that's where the conversation ends. But a couple of times I've continued on and said, why just all right? Why not? Great. Um, And sometimes I'm surprised with a floodgate of information that I never would have gotten otherwise. And so that's an invitation for people to become more vulnerable with you and and create stronger bonds with your team. And really, you know, if you're willing to say uncomfortable things with your teammates, then, then they have a tendency to trust you more. And I think leadership sometimes is so bogged down with their responsibilities and expectations of the leaders above them that, and they should be taking this they should be taking this upon themselves, obviously, to check on their people, right? But sometimes they just don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes you have to come out and say, boss, I need a day to myself. I'm getting a divorce and I'm on the edge of my sanity. I just, I need it. Or I really need you to not say this thing to me. Or sometimes you can ask a big favor. It'll be surprising. I had a soldier once who had previously screwed up epically and was trying to regain his security clearance and uh you know one of our first conversations is well what's the status of your clearance he's like i don't know i don't know if anybody's processing it or not and what ended up happening was i marched him into my boss's office and was the battalion commander was like hey you know the soldier has proven himself a hard worker he's shown that he's sorry for what he did and he paid his consequence can we start, will you sign a paperwork to get him this TS back? And he was like, yeah, let's do it. And if we had never asked, right, 
that guy would never have had, gone on to, by the way, be the best non-commissioned officer I've ever had work under me. Wow. Ever. He was phenomenal. Um, but it took taking the risk to walk in my boss's office and have him say, are you crazy? No way. Right. Like sometimes you have to take that chance. Um, and ironically, I think women are in some ways better suited to take risks in a male dominated arena because a lot of times males just don't know what to expect from you so if you're surprising it's less surprising than a male being surprising if that makes sense it's so true I love that you bring that up yes we are kind of expected to be unexpected (laughs) like you know yes so good so good Meg where can the people find you on the socials so on the socials, we can be found on Instagram. We are Valkyrie Project US on Instagram. Our website is ValkyrieProjectUS.com. We do have an account on Twitter, but I'll be honest, I don't I don't tweet very much because it's become hyper politicized for me and it doesn't really do much for the business, I don't think. Um, but we can also be found on Facebook, we do have a closed forum that you can be, um, you'll be an ex- extended an invitation for once you sign up for programming. And I'll also add on to that, that any athlete gets the first month free. So, and, and we don't turn anyone away, literally no one. Um, I've had males sign up for our programming and, and love it. Um, it's designed for women, but you know, everyone's welcome. So first month is free for anyone that wants to just try it out. And that information can be found on our website. I love it. And we'll have it right in the show notes. So you guys don't have to look anywhere. Just go right to the show notes, click there and go check Meg um, and the Valkyrie project out. Meg, thank you so much for being here. It has been an absolute pleasure to be speaking with you. Everybody else, I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the She's an Asset podcast. If you wouldn't mind, could you please share this out? The only way we grow and I can get this out to as many people as possible is with your help. So we're kind of in this together. And the good thing is, is I know you have my back. So uh, I want to say thank you and ask for you to share the show. And if we're not hanging out in the socials, I hope that you'll come and hang out with me. I'm Autumn Clifford pretty much everywhere. Thank you so much. See you next time.